0: Welcome to the Mayo Clinic Cardiovascular Continuing Medical Education Podcast. Join us each week to discuss the most pressing topics in cardiology and gain valuable insights that can be directly applied to your practice.
1: Welcome everyone uh, to today's uh, session of interview with the experts. I'm delighted to have my friend and uh, colleague, uh, Dr. Maggie Redfield. She's a heart failure uh, specialist in the Department of uh, Cardiovascular uh, Medicine. She's also um, a professor of medicine and the former chair of our division of Circulatory circuitry failure. Welcome, Maggie.
0: Nice to be here, Malcolm.
1: Yeah, so today we're going to be talking about an incredibly uh, important uh, group of uh, drugs, uh, the uh, SGLT2 inhibitors. Uh, but uh, particularly with uh, respect to the treatment of patients with heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. We're, we're aware that there are some other indications for these drugs, but the patients with HEFREF, uh, uh, the uh, the topic for today. Maybe I'll just uh, have you start and, and tell us what, what is the evidence that we should be using these drugs uh, in this group of patients? Well, I think that's
0: a great question. And The evidence is really overwhelming. I can't think of a medication that so quickly amassed such a body of evidence for its use. So when we're talking about its use in heart failure with reduced EF, we're talking about 40% or below. First and foremost, we know that this class of drugs prevent heart failure with empagliflozin, canagliflozin, dapagliflozin in diabetics. Three huge trials in diabetics, most without heart failure. 90% didn't have heart failure. Just high-risk diabetics. Use of these drugs produced a consistent, I mean, it was almost identical in each of those three trials, reduction in incidence of heart failure. Over 35,000 patients in these three trials, and it was highly significant reduction in new heart failure. And we got a lot of information about safety of these drugs and tolerance of those drugs from those prevention trials. Then of course, now we have three trials presented within a year, essentially three trials in heart failure and reduced ejection fraction. And these three trials, two of them enrolled both diabetics and non-diabetics. That's the DAPA-HF trial with dapagliflozin and the emperor reduce trial with empagliflozin. And then there was the soloist worsening heart failure, which was with solagliflozin, which is actually an SGLT1 and 2 inhibitor. And that one was in hospitalized heart failure patients with diabetes. So three trials and a big meta-analysis of all three of these trials published in the European Journal of Heart Failure. And what those three trials showed was, again, incredibly consistent findings A reduction in the primary endpoints of heart failure hospitalizations or cardiovascular death. It was a very dramatic reduction and also analyzed each component of the primary endpoint and showed that it reduced hospitalizations, reduced cardiovascular death, and very, very importantly, reduced all-cause mortality with these agents. Now, in these trials, you had to have systolic heart failure, as I said, could be diabetic or non-diabetic, had to have an EF less than or equal to 40%, had to have a GFR of above 30, and all three trials had an antiprobian pre-entry criteria that they had to be above about 600 in science rhythm, above about 900 in AFib, and you had to have a blood pressure of around 95 to 100 to get in. And again, very consistent findings. So now, ESC guidelines recommend their use in HEFRAF. The ACC guidelines are being redone, but an ACC expert consensus document recommends their use. And of course, empagliflozin and dapagliflozin are both labeled for HEFRAF. So, really, a, a compelling story of benefit.
1: Yeah, thank you for that uh, summary. And just going back to uh, your earlier comment about you know the you know, just the amount of data we have supporting this and. If I remember correctly, I mean these started off really as uh, diabetic drugs and the uh, cardiovascular benefits were almost sort of serendipitous uh, in terms of just proving safety but they've sort of had an explosion of their own indication since then and
0: yeah if you go back and read the protocols for those three big prevention trials they don't even mention heart failure they all collected data but they It was all focused on ischemic events. So I guess it shows that even today, accidents still happen.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and as you said, you know, you couldn't remember uh, a time that, uh, or or maybe another drug or intervention that's uh, had, you know, so much, you you know, published on it and maybe, you know, future impact. And, you know, would we be going too far to say that this is, you know, maybe just reminiscent of the uh, the effect that statins had, you know, over the last 20 years have just changed the, uh, the landscape of uh, yeah. atherosclerotic uh, disease and outcome. And uh, it's like a no-brainer that you're going to be on a statin. And it really um, has just really had a major, I guess, effect and revolution on just how we treat patients with cardiovascular disease. Do you see these, uh, uh, this class of drugs maybe having similar impact?
0: Yes, not so much on uh, atherosclerotic disease, but on heart failure and on renal failure, which, as you well know, uh, goes hand in hand with heart failure. And so the fact that these drugs have also been shown to improve uh, renal function and and decrease adverse renal outcomes, uh, really, it is sort of like a new and different statin. I agree. Okay.
1: Well, you Well, know, I mean, I think our listeners are going to be very interested in, you know, uh, how do you start this, uh, you know, uh, medication. But before we do that, maybe just very briefly, I mean, who are the patients that we would not consider uh, this? And, and hopefully this is a relatively small group, but right. maybe we just dispense with that very quickly what we're always afraid of in heart
0: failure is, are we going to drop the blood pressure? And these medications have very little impact on blood pressure. So you don't have to worry so much about that. Although the trials had an entry criteria of 95 to 100. Most people would probably maybe go down to 90. They obviously cause loss of glucose, which produces an osmotic diuresis and sodium in the urine. And most of the patients in the trials were fairly well compensated. So patients can get dehydrated on these. So you got to make sure they have adequate fluid intake. And then we check a set of electrolytes within two weeks of initiating them. Not for use in type ones, not for use in type twos with a history of DKA. You have to have the GFR above 30. And the two things that come up are UTIs because you're losing sugar in your urine. So it makes it a better culture media. Um, So, you know, elderly women with a lot of urinary tract infections, you got to be very careful with them and stay on top of it. And then there's this really rare necrotizing perineal fasciitis that can happen, but it's super rare, less than 1%. And it wasn't significantly different in in these cardiovascular trials in placebo versus SGLT2 inhibitor-treated patients. So that's the main thing, not type 1, adequate renal function. And talk about the perineal and the urine fasciitis and the urinary tract infections. Make sure your patients are looking out for that.
1: No, I I, I may be mistaken here, but I, I thought that these drugs had been used in patients who have type one diabetes uh, who are an agent, not the heart failure patients, but in the diabetic population, they're not using that. It could be, uh, no,
0: not so much because. Um, you know, if you have an insulin deficiency and you're losing, you know, sugar via different way, they can cause a propensity to DKA. So no, not not for type ones.
1: But it could be type two who's on insulin, of course.
0: Yeah, it, insulin doesn't matter. Yeah.
1: Perfect. Okay. So now let let's uh, say you're seeing a patient in the outpatient clinic, you know, today, and uh-huh. uh, let's say has has established heart failure, right? Uh, systolic heart failure and is on you know, the, the beta blockers, the ACE inhibitors, et cetera, is this a patient that you're now interested in starting uh, one of these agents? And if so, how would you do it? Or And then maybe just address the, the question of, is there any titration required? Uh, what sort of things are you looking for uh, in these patients?
0: Well, where are you going to see heart failure patients? The first one is the scenario you presented. Outpatient on guideline-directed medical therapy, beta blockers, some sort of RAS antagonist, hopefully, and TRUSTO, and then Ldactone antagonist. Then if you're seeing a patient like that, remember 75% of the patients in the trials were class two. So doing pretty well, class one or two. So just because they're doing well, that's exactly the patient you should start. So yes, everybody in that scenario, who meet the guidelines should be started. In non-diabetics, you just start it. 10 milligrams of DAPA, 10 milligrams of EMFA. You review the side effects. We check an electrolyte panel in two weeks and uh, you're good to go. Now, what's the other scenario? You might be in the outpatient setting, seeing a patient with systolic heart failure who you're still up titrating. There's a cogent argument to just going ahead and starting it anyway, you know, more uh, emphasis is now being placed on rather than waiting till you get the RAS antagonist, the beta blocker and the aldosterone and then add dapagliflozin. The some people are really arguing or, or epigliflozin. Some people are really arguing that you should do it right away. So that's, we'll wait and see what the guidelines say, but there are several position papers that are advancing that that even if you're not finished up titrating, go ahead and add it in. And then the third and the most important, I think, uh, scenario is you're in the hospital.
1: And well, you're- just, Before we get to the hospital, Maggie, let's okay. just, because I think that you're Fred. really important practical advice you're giving here. So again, that patient that you're actually initiating a treatment uh, with ACE inhibitors, diuretics, you know, um, and the other drugs that you mentioned there, Uh, what you're saying here, I mean, particularly is it's not really going to uh, affect their blood pressure, which most of those other drugs do. Maybe you do start it there. You don't have to wait and bring them back and a few months later and they're tolerating. And And one of
0: the things that goes to that argument is, well, in the trials, everybody was on excellent guideline-directed medical therapies. But the question is, do you have to wait until you're done? And and that's an area that the guidelines will have to address, but you could consider
1: adding it in early but this was in the non-diabetic patients. Now, what about right. if a patient has diabetes, is uh, on metformin or insulin mm-hmm. uh, looked after by a diabetic specialist? Is this a drug that you're gonna feel comfortable starting yourself or it, are you gonna wait for the diabetic specialist to do it? Or is there some other way we could make sure that this patient's not gonna miss out on the benefits of this drug?
0: That's a great, great point. And I think it's important to communicate with whoever is managing the patient's diabetes. And if the patient is well controlled, if they're on metformin and another oral agent, a different uh, type of oral agent, you can stop the other oral agent and add it to the metformin. But you really got to communicate to it with whoever is managing uh, the diabetes.
1: So let's move to the inpatient practice then. Uh, that's obviously where you know, we see a lot of these patients, you know, mm-hmm. um, very often with you know, acute and chronic you know, decompensation of, of their heart failure or a new diagnosis of acute heart failure.
0: Well, if the patient's in with decompensation or, or new onset, We didn't get to delve into the specific trials, but that SOLUS trial, which was hospitalized diabetic with heart failure, starting it there, regardless of the F in that trial, but it was mostly half breath, and regardless of background therapy, resulted in a number needed to treat of only four. And analysis of all these trials, the SOLUS and the other trials, you start to see the statistically significant impact on the primary outcome within a month.
1: And the primary outcome, just to remind everyone?
0: In most cases, it was cardiovascular death or heart failure hospitalization or cardiovascular death and heart failure rehospitalization. So, you know, therapeutic inertia is something really to avoid here because the effects come on fast and a very small number needed to treat. And it's the people who are in the hospital who are obviously at the highest risk of rehospitalization. So, you know, we're really working hard and it is difficult because you don't know if the patient's insurance will pay for it. So you've got to write a prescription for them, have them, you know, contact the pharmacist at their filling pharmacy and see what their copay is and see if they can be afford to be on it. Because That's really a window of opportunity to have the biggest impact.
1: Do you see um, your continued hesitation then among cardiologists in prescribing these drugs? And and what can we do to overcome that uh, therapeutic inertia as you uh, mentioned?
0: Well, there always is therapeutic inertia, and we just need to do better with these class of drugs. And the big thing is the cost for the patients. The therapeutic inertia for the physicians, I think, is maybe some hesitancy about a diabetic drug or saying, well, they're doing pretty well, you know, but that's what we have to emphasize is that, yeah, those are the patients who are in the trials who obtain so much benefit. The number needed to treat for not the hospitalized patients, but the patients enrolled as outpatients was only 15 to 20. So that's pretty low for an NNT. The cost of these is kind of about like Entresto. Not everybody's insurance will pay for it. But I think the roll-in is going much more smoothly than it did for Entresto. We're getting fewer turndowns as the experience with it
1: grows. So as as I attempt to summarise this, then so we've we've got this new class of agents have very powerful uh, you know effects uh, particularly on uh, cardiovascular outcomes in terms of hospitalisation for heart failure mortality. I mean these are you know really strong you know endpoints you know and in that hospital population a number needed to treat of only four is that's something that should always get our attention. Yes. <laughs> that's something that's uh, you know incredibly important to understand for the non-diabetic uh, patients uh, whether they're in the hospital or the outpatients this should be pretty easy for us to uh, prescribe and we should start doing that the ones who are diabetic and again just to clarify these are type 2 diabetics whether or not they're on insulin and uh, and these benefits apply to those who are diabetic and non-diabetic but the diabetic patients we probably have to have close communication with the diabetic uh, specialist I'm not sure if they're suffering from any uh, therapeutic inertia in these patients. You, you may want to make a comment there. But regardless, I think communication is going to be very, very important. Uh, anything you want to add, maybe before we uh, wrap up here?
0: That's a great summary. I think the only other thing I would uh, emphasize is that this is an easy one. No of titration, very good safety profile, maybe just a set of electrolytes two weeks after starting. Compared to what we go through with beta blockers and RAS antagonists and aldosterone, this should be easy. And then the diabetics, there is already the ESC recommend SGLT2 as first-line agent. We don't know yet what this side of the Atlantic will recommend as far as unselected patients with diabetes. But our diabetic specialists have been good to work with. And, you know, most of the primary care providers are managing the diabetes and they're very open to this. Just takes a phone call.
1: Yeah. And one final practical question in the patient uh, who ends up getting admitted to the cardiac intensive care unit, pulmonary edema, you know, whether or not they've uh, had a history of heart failure in the past, but has DKA. And maybe this is the first time they're presented with DKA. Is this a patient that you would hold off starting? This? Absolutely,
0: group ones and group twos who are prone to DKA. You would definitely want a diabetologist involved if you're even going to consider
1: it. Maggie, uh, it's always a pleasure talking to you. Uh, you're such an expert in the field of uh, heart failure, and uh, we're very, uh, very fortunate to, ha- to have you uh, discuss this topic with us today. And I think our listeners and viewers will really appreciate the uh, the information that you've uh, shared with us today. So thank you so much for your time.
0: Have a great day, Malcolm. Thank you for joining us today. Feel free to share your thoughts and suggestions about the podcast by emailing cvselfstudy at mayo.edu. Be sure to subscribe to the Mayo Clinic Cardiovascular CME Podcast on your favorite platform. And tune in each week to explore today's most pressing cardiology topics
1: with your colleagues at Mayo Clinic.